Welcome to Nature Centered, a podcast from Wild Birds Unlimited about feeding the birds and enjoying nature right in your own backyard. Here are your hosts, naturalists John Schaust and Brian Cunningham. Hey everyone, I'm John Schaust. And I am Brian Cunningham. <laughs> Welcome to episode 22 of our Nature Centered podcast. And a little mystery to start off our program today. We're going to be talking about one of the most common birds all across North America in the wintertime, but we think most people don't pay attention to it at all. We call it the gray ghost. Yes, John, and this secretive little bird is also known for a few other names. Lots of variation in this bird, but also its name comes from the Latin for rush or like reeds that you would find in a wetland. <laughs> and if you're not totally confused by now, give us a guess as to what you think that bird is. We have kind of gone back to our roots, you know, we we mm -hmm. we take on a lot of topics on this podcast, and, and um, you know sometimes we talk about an individual group of birds or even an individual bird. Other times we talk about habitat. We talk about seven actions people can take to help songbirds. Lots of different topics, but we decided it was time to get back to our roots, and that is to talk about one group of birds. So what is it? Juncos, the dark-eyed junco. They're all around in winter time. I love when they show up at my feeders right now. It's wintertime. I've got this flock at my feeders and it's so much fun watching them, but they also have some other, you know, some other hanging around with them. Every time the juncos show up, like right now, I got song sparrows that are feeding right alongside of them. And I know you've got some other fun ones <laughs> feeding alongside those juncos in your yard. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I think they are. Juncos are like a, an old friend. They show back up in the wintertime. Of course, they're here only in the wintertime. Uh, and they're supposedly, you know, according to, to different counts, they're in about 80% of people's backyards that feed the birds. So they're a very ubiquitous bird. Uh, and you're right, Brian. It's, it's very cool in the sense that they always kind of seem to hang around. Of course, they're a sparrow. They're a type of sparrow. Yes, and in they, the sparrow family. Yep. They hang around with other sparrows quite often. And like you're saying, I've got song sparrows right now. I have probably more song sparrows at this very moment than I've had any time in the rest of the year. I think I've got six or seven that I can see at one time That's in my fantastic. backyard. But the cool thing, the most exciting thing that happened in the past few days is that I've had a swamp sparrow, swamp sparrow, which is a very cool little sparrow. Uh, I do live near a lake and I do have a creek right next to my house, but I, in 27 years, have never had a swamp sparrow come to my feeders. <laughs> well, that's so cool. So that's been pretty exciting. And it's hanging out with the juncos. That's cool. And people are wondering what that swamp sparrow looks like. They kind of look like a song sparrow. And if you don't know what a song sparrow looks like, Let's go look them up. They, uh, the swamp sparrows are really cool. Um, the swamp sparrows are kind of like a little splash of color separate from the, the song sparrow. And song sparrows love to sing, hence their name. And the swamp sparrows love to live in those moist areas. So it's really cool that you have that in your yard. But I guess it doesn't surprise me you now have it because <laughs> that little creek and then the lake right up next to your, your yard there. But yeah, uh, but this is the first time ever. That's surprising to me, but I love it when those new birds show up. Yeah, I don't have extensive habitat. It's a nice little piece of habitat, but it's not extensive. It's not like I live in a big wetland or, you know, the lowland area where you typically find a lot of uh, swamp sparrows. 
but it, it is good enough. You're exactly right. It is kind of surprising that I never had one before, but I don't care. I got one now, and that's <laughs> <laughs> it's been a treat. It's been a real treat to watch it and watch it interact with the other birds in the backyard. That's excellent. So I have another sparrow that has joined my juncos, and I've only seen them once, and that is the American tree sparrow is really neat because they come down from the northern boreal forest oddly enough as well the tundra it's kind of a misnamed bird (laughs) the american tree sparrow nests in the tundra (laughs) what (laughs) (laughs) but it's it it was mixed in with my my juncos and song sparrows i don't think i've ever had an american tree sparrow come to my feeders before so super cool you wouldn't think after all these years of feeding the birds that we'd get to go so geeked about a bird showing up on a yard. But that's actually <laughs> that's right. part that's actually part of the reason I'm yep. so geeked. It's one that I don't have. Well, let's circle back to the junco. Not only do they go by so many names when you break them down, we actually have two species. We have the dark-eyed junco and the yellow-eyed junco in North America. But underneath those two, my gosh, you've got six populations and multiple subspecies so Mm -hmm. it can really be a little bit (laughs) mind-boggling real quick just a subspecies is typically kind of a geographical set of birds that have unique characteristics maybe even a unique call or song Uh, and and it's typically geographic Uh, certain locations the the population's been kind of isolated and so it's basically changed a little bit maybe it's coloration song behavior whatever it might be well, I really like, uh, and one of the most common names is the snowbird, because your your dark-eyed juncos have a kind of a, a darker back or a slate-colored back, and there's a little bit of variation in that color, but then a white belly. And the idea was a couple of different things. You know, in wintertime, they're way up north. They're up in that, that taiga between the boreal forest and the tundra, way in North, North America, for their, most of the, these birds for breeding. They come down into the lower 48 states and the southern provinces of Canada in the wintertime. So people would think, oh, it's the snowbird. When they show up, it's time for winter, whether you get snow or not. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. that other idea is having that dark back and that white belly is kind of the idea of the snow on the ground with a laden uh, clouded skies above. So interesting to be called the snowbird. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And we talk about the seasonal changes in the bird activity in our backyard and the migrants that come and go spring, you know, and fall and stay with us either through the summer or through the winter. And, you know, it is. I use this a lot and I, I mean every word of it. It's like old friends showing up. You oh, know, when yeah. that first junco shows up, typically what, September, give or take, they start showing up. It is. It is just like, and they do, they come back to the same place. <laughs> so that junco that's in my backyard oh, yeah. this year. Uh, may very well be the junco that was here last year. They come back traditionally most often to the same 10 acres or so every single winter. So that's one of the things you need to look for is the fact that those 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 juncos, that, that ghost bird yep. that's in your yep. backyard, um, <laughs> is actually probably a returning visitor year after year. And they do have a decent lifespan to be able to do that. Oh, for sure. And it's so much fun. And we talk about it being the ghost bird because once they come back and they'll start showing up, you said that kind of that September time, the earliest ones that start to move are August, but it's so uncommon because there are so few that'll start moving then. But September, October, November, boom, here they come. And by December, they've moved. They've moved into where they're going. And then they just become this background bird at the feeders, right? Yeah. Yeah. Eventually, you're like, oh, yeah, there they are. You look past them because now you're looking for the new birds. Yeah. But yeah. 
one of the other things that I always like to uh, refer to the Junkos is like the Morse code bird, <laughs> because they make these little calls that it reminds me of my, my, my dad tried to teach me some Morse code as a kid and that and, and and this the calls almost sound like that but you know all growing up and and having star wars and star wars is now this multi-generational entertainment scenario there's a call that the <laughs> that the junkos do that sounds like kind of like stormtroopers going so lots of different names right uh what am i gonna do with you brian There is quite a difference between the behavior between the male and the female uh, juncos in regards to their migration. Mm-hmm. The males yeah. will typically, yeah, they typically don't go very far. Uh, they'll go just as far south as they need to to get through the winter. The reason they do that is they don't want to have that long migration in the spring to get back on their breeding territory. They want to be able to go back and reclaim their breeding territory as fast as they possibly can. Plus, there's a hierarchy. Males are dominant. The adult males and the juvenile males are dominant over the adult females, which are dominant over the juvenile females. So there's a hierarchy. It's that pecking order, right? So again, it goes, it goes, it goes male is yep. the top dog, adult male, then juvenile male, mm-hmm. then adult female, and then the juvenile female. So if I am a female, <laughs> I don't want to mess around with somebody trying to push me around underneath the feeder mm-hmm. all the time. And I know that they're going to drop out earlier on migration than I am. So here's the strategy, sports fans. <laughs> if the male is dropping out north and I'm the female, I'm going south. And so if you're in Michigan, about 20% of your birds in Michigan are female, 80% are male. By the time you get down to like Alabama, it's reversed. About 80% are female and about 20% are male. So, John, it's a lot like uh, we get different people who are, we call the snowbirds, kind of like the juncos. Let's head south for the winter. Let's get into warmer climates and let the men stay north and shovel the snow and eat the food up there. I'm, <laughs> I'm going further south to feast. So that way the female doesn't have to put up with a you know dominant male and juvenile pushing her around underneath the feeder. She doesn't care when she gets back. The male can get back and set territory. She'll get back when she gets back in a sense. So yeah, it's a very cool thing. And, and you can see the males are much richer in color. Our, our uh, slate color junco anyway, we're talking mm-hmm. at this particular case. Uh, they're much darker. The males are much darker. They're almost black on the back with a really bright white belly and chest. Whereas the females are more gray. They're more that slate gray. And so you really can look at your population in your backyard and, and kind of figure out the percent of how many males and females you've got. Maybe we could throw out a little challenge for folks to watch in your backyard, especially if you have a ground feeder. They love to, these birds love to feed on millet as well as sunflower chips. And one of those things that a bird behavior you can watch for with the juncos is that tail. (laughs) They have a nice gray tail, but their outer white tail feathers hide underneath the gray tail. So these outer feathers are all white. And when they're interacting with one another, 
they'll flick their tail, flick, flick, fan flick, it out. Flick, flick, flick. Yeah, so flicking is they're <laughs> fanning their tail open, and you see these white flashes of the outer tail feathers come out. And sometimes it's like, boom, super fast. And they'll face each other and do it, and sometimes they'll go sideways and do it. And that's them basically saying, whoever's closer to the center of the food pile, I am more dominant. Even if it's a, a, a dominant female, she's saying to the lesser aged, the younger females, this is my spot. And then, you know, you can see some of the, the ones to the outer edge kind of flashing their tail saying, I'm not happy about this. I'm going to try to challenge you. It's so watch for those behaviors in your yards. Really fascinating and see if you can see who's dominant as well as what percentage do you have of male versus female in your yard feeding? Talking mostly about our uh, our uh, slate colored junco that is predominant in the uh, species in the eastern part of the United States, and then of course we've got uh, and again it's not species it's actually a subspecies of the dark eyed junco and I know this is terribly confusing, <laughs> but again well, let's got, break it down and make it simpler yeah, for everybody. Yeah, you've got the dark eyed junco uh, and that is pretty well universal, uh, and but yet you have a number of populations under the dark eyed junco that a lot of it at one time they actually were considered separate species, but now they've all been clumped underneath the dark-eyed junco as a as a population, if you will. And then, of course, the other junco that we have in North America is, that is a true species, and that's the yellow-eyed junco. And I bet you know why it's called that. Because <laughs> it, it has a pink eye? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> when you look at like the dark-eyed junco, and let's break it down because we have six populations of the dark-eyed junco. And in the east... You predominantly have the slate-colored junco. So basically from the Mississippi to the east, um, the, the slate-colored junco. But then that from that Mississippi west, you have five other populations that in many respects look like a different species. But we talked earlier that you know now it's by genetic study. We know that they're all the same species, but they just look different. And so we call them different populations, like the Oregon junco. And the Oregon junco is throughout the West in many different states. And in some, they're a year-round bird, or you can find them year-round. And some do only a little bit of moving out there. Um, down in the Southwest, we have one called the gray-headed. Then we also, in the central states, have two. One is called the pink-sided, which is actually in a pretty large swath of the central states. But then this very small swath, we have the white-winged junco, which can very easily be confused with a slate-colored junco. Just really start to look for the little white wing bars. Um, and then we have the red-backed junco, and they're mainly down in the swath of Arizona, New Mexico. Um, and they all have a little bit of variation in coloration. Um, one of my favorites is, since we live in the east, I love when I'm traveling out west, the Oregon junco is just one of those that is such a wonderful feeder bird they're kind of like the slate colors out here, the gray ghost. Everyone out there, and I go talk to them, they're like, I want to see an Oregon <laughs> junco. And they're like, I just look out the window. They're always there. <laughs> and I, I always know that, hey, I can always get to see those Oregon juncos because they, you mm, think there would oh, be absolutely. a different species just by their different colorations. So very, very neat to see those these variations and why it is such a, a neat bird to be studied. And it's yeah, nice yeah. that they're so amicable, if you will. <laughs> 
<laughs> to hey, let's watch you and let's yeah. study you and like yeah. okay, here's what I eat. Yeah, here's I talk where about I the Oregon junco. Here's what I do. Talk about a bird that when it does show up in the east and here in our area, uh, boy, people get excited because they're so handsome. You talk about a handsome, handsome bird. They may not. Oh yeah. They might not disappear quite as much as our slate colors because our slate colors do just kind of blend into mm-hmm. the background a little bit. Uh, they are just a really handsome bird. So it, it definitely, if you're not familiar with the Oregon Junco and you're from the East, uh, pull out a field guide or go to eBird or uh, Merlin and, and take a look. Yeah. Actually, I didn't. Yeah, the, there's five actual species of Juncos in the world. Uh, we have the two here in North America, uh, and I've seen both of those. And I got very lucky. I had a wonderful opportunity to do a couple of trips to Costa Rica. And if you do the Pan American Highway uh, south of San Jose, uh, you get into some very, very high terrain. And there's actually one junco called the Volcano Junco. Very cool. Yeah, it's only known in this one little area. And what's weird, in since it's it's uh, it's really... True of juncos in general, juncos have been used for scientific research and study for decades. I mean, they're mm-hmm. the, one of the original studies back in 1924 about the, what causes bird to migrate, you know, the, the, the day length, basically, learning how that whole process worked. Juncos were the bird that were used to find out and understand the cycle of migration for birds. Well, the volcano junco in Costa Rica is being studied because it is, instead of migrating north and south, it migrates up and down according to elevation. So it drops. Mm, altitudinal yeah. migration. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things that they've noticed as the climate has warmed is that that bird keeps going higher and higher and higher to nest. Oh, getting up into the, the cooler areas. Exactly right. So it's not too hot, but not too cold. Well, guess what happened? They're going to run out of mountain, right? They're actually at this point at the very top of the mountain where they're breeding and nesting. Wow. So the question is, what will they do next? You know, mm-hmm. will they be able to hang on there? Will their population actually start dropping and declining? So it was very cool. The Actually, the person, the guide who took us there is part of that research project. And it was very cool to listen to that and understand what they're doing. But the juncos, historically, when it comes to things like uh, habitat and uh, physiology and uh, um, different uh, other types of studies looking at, at behavior. Uh, they're actually a, a heavily, heavily researched bird. Uh, they've been looked at a lot. And there's a couple of reasons why. Um, they're actually pretty easy to catch. I mean, they're pretty easy <laughs> to trap and they're not a hard bird to get. And they, they're very tolerant of, of captivity and, you know, being used as, as uh, research birds. Uh, they're very, very tolerant of that. And so they, they fare very, very well uh, when you're doing those kinds of research. So they kind of uh, were an early bird to, for researchers to use. And so there's this huge uh, database on all different aspects of their biology, their physiology, their behavior, their habitat needs, their food needs that now we can look at those and do new research because we have this incredible baseline of data on the, on the uh, juncos right now. Let's talk about, you know, we are um, a sponsor of the National Wildlife Federation Certified Backyard Habitat uh, Program. Uh, we are very, very uh, strong proponents of doing whatever we can to help save our songbirds. And there was a study that came out uh, a few years, uh, probably about a year and a half ago now, 
that uh, kind of went through a lot of the different songbirds and, and talked about their population decline overall. Um, the population decline is almost 30% since uh, 1970 in, in numbers. In that 50-year period, we've seen almost 170 million bird decline in their population. So they've actually dropped by that many birds, according to the mm, study. Yeah. So it is something that while their population is real healthy and, and you know, there's still plenty of uh, juncos flying around North America, it is something that we want to be aware of. And there are things we can do in our backyard to help these birds when they get here. Well, like you said, when they get here, because they're here for winter. So there are, yeah, there are definitely things we can be doing. Yeah, and one of my favorites, although it doesn't make me popular with my neighbors, uh, but <laughs> one of their natural food supplies, and uh, not one, many of their natural food supplies that they come here, and of course they like little weed seeds. They like little tiny, round, for the most part, weed seeds. And everyone and would, loves to hear about <laughs> weed seeds in their yard, right, yeah, John? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, you know, to ask you to leave the chickweed and the ragweed and the knotweed and the pigweed and the crabgrass seeds, uh, you know, plants uh, and not take them out because the juncos are going to use them for food is maybe not always <laughs> going to work. <laughs> right. But it is, if you think about the juncos, that is, those, those plants are some of their major sources of natural food uh, when they do come down here. Well, one of the cool things to be able to watch for, if, if you just leave a section of your yard, maybe it's a little out of the way section if you live in a manicured suburbia, but try to leave some of that because when they show up, uh, the, the juncos will do like many of the sparrow family birds do. They will feed doing something that's described as riding. <laughs> Woohoo! Yeah, and it, it's almost like a little amusement park ride, but they get snacks too, where they, they'll land on those plants um, as they're still up and their seed on them. The birds will come and they'll land on the top and their weight will bend the, the shaft of the plant on down to the ground and not always all the way to the ground. And then you got this little junco sitting on this plant that's starting to come down. So they ride it down and eat, walk to the edge, the end of it and eat the seeds off of it. Uh, it, so it's really neat when it goes all the way to the ground, uh, but it's even more fun to see them when it doesn't go all the way to the ground and they're kind of bouncing <laughs> on it. So it's just settling. Yeah, while they're eating. It's, it's really some fun things you can be watching for. Yeah. You know, something else you can think about uh, helping them out, and that's, uh, you know, wintertime, uh, roosting uh, habitat is everything. Man, oh, if you indeed. are a bird and you're going to go through that long long and sometimes bitterly cold winter night you better have a really good place to spend that night and typically juncos would would use some type of very dense evergreen uh, whether it's a tree or a shrub of some type uh and, and i know in my yard i have a few i have a few cedars in my front yard that that uh, i knew a lot of birds that you see them going in there and roosting at night uh, but one of the things i've done in my yard and, and, and the juncos will absolutely use too and that is brush piles Mm -hmm. And I know yes. the same thing. It's like, oh, gosh, you know, a brush pile, how ugly. And, you know, that's, that's my neighbors aren't going to like that. But you know what? You can actually do a pretty neat little brush pile if you strategically place it in your yard. And I have four of them. I literally have four of them around uh, different sides of my yard. And it's been cool. It's been really cool to watch, especially the last couple of nights have been really cold. 
And I have one brush pile that's my song sparrow and my swamp sparrow I've talked about. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like their pile. <laughs> and, and they, they go take claim it over it. that one. Yeah, they go claim it about that last 30 <laughs> minutes of light, and they sit on top of it. And then all of a sudden, just at the right moment, they all just drop down inside that brush pile and go down and hide and spend the night under that brush pile. I've got another one that I've absolutely seen juncos go into and go underneath and, and, and uh, other birds too. So uh, consider, if you can, either planting some type or providing some type of a thick evergreen type shrub or tree and or some type of a brush pile for these guys to roost in. It, it really makes the difference in, in how they make it through these long nights. My juncos actually don't live in the brush piles. They actually live under the neighbor's shed. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> okay, consider building a shed in your backyard. <laughs> they have a nice little lattice work to keep the critters out, keep the raccoons away, and they do. They hide under the shed and roost under there in a little flock group every night. So the other thing you can do, certainly, and, and they are feeder birds. They are coming to your yard more than likely because you have feeders, uh, and they are millet fiends. They love millet. And oh, yeah. One of, one of the cool things as a, as a bird bander, uh, I've, I've done some banding uh, with a colleague of mine, and one of the cool things, he, he trapped a number of juncos, and it's kind of cool because you can see through the skin of birds because it's so thin. It's it's an adaption to be very lightweight. So you can literally look in their throat and see that little crop or gullet, whatever you want to call it. And you can see it's stuffed full of millet. And, and as we were processing these birds, we'd blow the feathers you know, to the side. We'd use a straw and blow the feathers to the side and literally see dozens, if not hundreds, of millet seeds inside this gullet uh, late in the afternoon before they went to roost. And that's one of the ways they get through the night is they pack that gullet full of extra food and process it as the night goes along. So absolutely put millet out for these guys. They like actually chips, sunflower chips that mm-hmm. are out of the shell. They'll use those heavily. Uh, so providing those supplemental foods to their natural foods is another important thing you can do. Yeah, and it's really easy to present those foods, trying to keep the foods up off of the ground by offering a ground tray feeder. Uh, that'll help keep the foods dry. It'll help keep them fresh. Um, but every once in a while, especially if you get uh, some harsh weather coming in, maybe drizzle a little bit of that food under a little sheltered spot or out of the predominant winds, especially you get those cold wind chill times. Because wind with a bird, even though they're they're wearing this, this right. wonderful coat, that as a waterproof coat, wind chill really does affect them as much as it affects us. And so if you can help tuck some food behind a little windbreak shelter, maybe it's some of those plants in your yard, those native plants or bushes, uh, just give them a place to get out of the wind while feeding. And that's why I buy extra millet in the wintertime to make sure I'm, I'm getting that millet out there for those birds because I love watching these little gray ghosts and all these other sparrows come in. <laughs> it just makes that seasonal feeding of the birds. It's, it, it goes back to it's the old friends coming home. Yeah, yeah. I don't know whether we've made our case about it being the gray ghost. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think, you know, honestly, I think people will relate to the fact that it is a very cool bird to have in your backyard, but it's one that we quite often overlook and just don't pay attention to. Definitely. So hopefully we've given everybody a lot of background information on what you can do to help those birds when they're here, what kind of behaviors to look for uh, when they are here, watch for that difference in how many male versus female, that ratio that you have in mm-hmm. your backyard. Uh, watch for that uh, dominant behavior, that tail flicking and that challenging each other under the feeders. 
uh, and and, uh, just have fun with your snowbirds. All right, Brian, I think we've covered the Junko pretty thoroughly. What do you think? I think so. This little gray ghost that actually might be there a lot more often and readily than you realize is a lot of fun. I know I love these little Junkos and I hope everyone enjoyed hearing some fun facts and maybe some tips about getting bringing them out into view or attracting them to your yard. I hope everybody had as much fun hearing all about the Junko as we had talking about the Junko. So, uh, (laughs) Brian, I think it's time for us to take our leave. And speaking of fun, if you were having fun and if you have learned things, please let us know. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, because we're definitely interested in your feedback as we move forward with continuing to do our nature-centered podcasts. So please join us next time when we share a little bit of information about our nesting neighbors. But as always, until then, we will let nature be our guide. Take care and be safe. Thanks for joining us, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of Nature Centered. To subscribe to this podcast, for show notes, or to connect with the Wild Birds Unlimited store nearest you, visit wbu.com slash podcast. Until we meet again, take some time to relax, enjoy the birds, get out in your backyard, and stay nature-centered. <laughs>